hello, beautiful. And what I really want to know is what is good in your life today? This is Kia with another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. So today I have a really unique and special episode. I have partnered with many of you may know already from some previous episodes with MOAA. And I get the distinct pleasure of interviewing some people who are affiliated with them. And this is one of those episodes. Now, today I have with me Kelly. She is incredible. She's got a great story. And it's a little different than what we normally hear because she worked for a public service, but not for an armed force service. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, but she's a former government employee. So same difference. And we're going to hear all about it. So welcome, Kelly. Hi, thank you. (laughs) So I'm so glad to have you with me. And I know that today happens to be a very special day for the public health service, the branch that you worked with. So what's going on with that? What's today? (laughs) Well, actually, I forgot all about it. And I got an email from Moa. It reminded (laughs) me that everybody that today is the 133rd birthday of the U.S. Public Health Service. And the PHS is one of the eight uniformed services with the addition of the Space Force. So we're the, one of the eight services, and we are not an armed service, but to give a little bit of background, the Marine Hospital Fund was created in 1798 by President John Adams to provide services to sea services, seamen. And then later, it became the Marine Hospital Service, and then later, the mission was expanded to provide services for the sea services and also public civilians. And in 1889, January 4th, the U.S. Public Health Service was instituted by the 50th Congress of the United States. So it's the Public Health Service. So happy birthday, Public Health (laughs) Service. We are recording this episode on January 4th. So it's probably, if you're hearing it, it's probably a couple of weeks after that, but still, Happy birthday to the Public Health Service. I think it's really interesting that it was started by John Adams, number one, because that's that's quite a long time ago. And number two, for sea services, seamen, because I was a seaman in the United States <laughs> Navy. And of course, we took care of our Marines, as you know, and we love our Coasties, the Coast Guard, which is, um, as I've been learning from interviewing Coast Guard female veterans, it's quite similar to the Navy, which I had no idea before. So uh, I think this is really cool. Now tell me, for anyone who doesn't quite understand what the public health service exactly does, what do you guys do there? Well, the public health service provides, you know, the Surgeon General of the United States, they oversee, they're the top mm-hmm. of the public health service. And you see all those Surgeon General warnings. And we wear a uniform. The uniform looks a lot like the Navy uniform. The insignia is, is what's different. The ranks are the same. All that, all that's the same. But the insignia, we have the anchor and we can do systematical versus where the Navy mm-hmm. is, is different. But really, that's what we do. And we, there's some engineering, but, you know, dentists, doctors, all the medical field services, that fields that you can think of. And then... Yeah, sanitarians, and there's a few 
IT people that slid in and I was an IT person. I don't know that they're bringing in IT people anymore, like for the health IT stuff. So I got in under the information technology arena, but it's really a medical service core, a medical core for that's under the health and human services umbrella. And um, it is a uniform service and we retire, we're veterans, we can have our VA card and that's how I got to know MOA a long time ago when I worked in Commission Corps personnel. And so that's when I learned about MOA and saw the magazines, but I really didn't know that much about it. And then after I left the public health service, then I started getting more involved and paying more attention. And then, you know, now five or six years later, I'm a lifetime member and I'm reaching out to them a lot for, for guidance. Yeah, they're a great organization. But yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. If, does that clear up with the... Kind of with the PHS. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize you guys were a uniform Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's medical. So that's, I was a hospital corpsman. So I Mm -hmm. really connect to the mission there. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that everything going on with the pandemic Mm -hmm. is sort of being monitored through this organization and all of the information we're receiving comes from them. A lot of it does. Now, interesting, Dr. Fauci is retired public health service officer. Oh, okay. A lot of people don't know that. Yes. So he was. And yeah, and I actually kind of feel bad for some of my PHS colleagues that are still in because they're just deploying around the clock. There's Mm -hmm. like not a lot of rest for people. They're just deploying, deploying, deploying because this pandemic is leaving so many. See, what happens if something happens like a hurricane or a pandemic or a bombing like World Trade Center? Mm -hmm. The states request funding and services from the federal government. A lot of times, and if it's medical needs or psychiatric, you know, we send sociologists like psychiatrists. We send people like that out when there's school shootings to go into the community. So they request help and funding, and then we send people on deployments to go to those areas. So our PHS, like a lot of nurses, they're just around the clock. They're just deploying. When that first cruise ship came in, when the pandemic happened and they were coming in Southern California, PHS went there to help out and stand up and meet with them and, and help oversee a lot of that when we didn't know anything about really what the pandemic was. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can just imagine. And so much round the clock work. I mean, especially now at the time of this interview, Omicron is the big yes. mm-hmm. new variant that is we're seeing spikes and we're seeing concerts being postponed now. And we're seeing sort of it's giving you like PTSD flashbacks to the beginning of the pandemic, I think a little bit. So I imagine that the public health service will be continuing to mm-hmm. work so hard and maybe even harder around the mm-hmm. clock until this new uh, wave is back under control. I guess they're calling it a surge. So, mm-hmm. um, and I'm familiar with that because when I was in the Navy every summer, we would have what they called recruit surge. And those of you who worked in services like I did in the hospital, in the pharmacy, which is where I worked, you would see an influx in um, patients and and that all of that because of all of that additional recruiting that happens that funnels through in the summertime and it had to be managed um, and it was around the clock and a lot of work. And so I can just barely imagine how hard everyone is working um, in the public health service right now. 
Right. Because this is all hands on deck. And a lot of the people who are deploying their day job could be researching and trying to get get their arms around what's what this is. And then, mm-hmm. then they leave their desk job and then they go and deploy and then they come back to their desk job. And we have if PHS doesn't do a very good job of marketing themselves. There's not a lot of marketing funding and people don't know about it. But you know, we had PHS people deploy for Ebola. Remember that outbreak mm-hmm, several I do. years ago? Mm-hmm. We sent people there and when they came back, they had the quarantine in hotel rooms for two or three weeks by themselves and before they could go with their families. They didn't know really what Ebola was. And the tsunami in uh, several years ago in um, Indonesia, somewhere in, in the Pacific, <laughs> one of those islands, the Bali, I think, you know, the, the tsunami. Yeah, I remember that. There. And people have gone over to the Middle East and worked in the hospitals and helped with some of the these countries building up their hospital systems after the military went in and did their thing. And PHS is there with them, helping them side by side, but from a medical standpoint, working with the local governments and you know hospitals there. Wow, it's amazing work. Definitely every bit as necessary and valuable as um, active duty armed forces work. What kind of training is required for you? Because we go to boot camp, but I imagine it's quite different. It, it is different. In, in order to get in to public health service to begin with, there's certain categories like dental, nursing, and engineering. There's certain categories, and then you need a specific degree to apply and then get a job. And where we're different from the military is kind of have to find our own jobs. You know, when you want to move around, you find your own job. There's not a recruiter or um, someone who's going to tell you when a detailer where to go when it's time to move. So you have to have a certain degree and you have to find a job and then you apply and then you can come in in the public health service. So that's how you get in. And back when I got in, really, it was you got mentored by senior people. You got paired up and mentored. Now they actually have basic officer training academy and it's a classroom academy. And so I think there is some PT involved now. I, I can't even speak to it because I didn't go through it, but I think there's a lot more involved now, but it's a basic officer training academy is what they call it. And it's, I, it's needed. <laughs> I would imagine so. And I would think that physical readiness would be a part of it, mm-hmm. PT, because of all the deploying that you have right. to do to places mm-hmm. overseas, just like we do in the, the armed services. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really interesting. The difference there. But when I was in, we followed the air force for the annual, like the PT requirements to show that you can run in a certain amount of time or mm-hmm. swim, you know, the push-ups and all that. So we followed the, the, I think it was the air force guidelines and then they switched over to the army. So there are annual guidelines. It's just a lot of it is not as structured as you would get in the military. Mm-hmm. But we had to sign off that we, you know, someone had to watch us do it. We can't sign our own, <laughs> our own <laughs> test, but somebody watched us and then signed off and submitted it. So there is that, that piece of it. And you are all officers, but back when you went through, there was no like field training or, or you went mm-hmm. OJT. So that's how right. I learned pharmacy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Instead of going to C school, I went OJT. So I, I'm for that. I think it actually works even better than book training, right? Mm -hmm. If classroom training, um, because it's very hands-on. I mean, I think if you're that kind of learner, which I certainly was working with people and learning on the job was always my favorite way to learn a new, a new skill. And how long did it take you to um, be trained and ready to take your job 
completely on your own? You know, it was in most situations, it's really like any other job, you know, you go in. And so when I went in, there were three of us that were new. So we kind of worked together and we had an engineering PHS supervisor who supervised this. And then it was, he oversaw, you know, we really just hit the ground running and we did have some on the job training. Like he, you know, showed us how to do some stuff and, uh, you know, like I didn't know how to, we had to wire cables for a network for (laughs) a Banyan Vines network. And he showed us how to do that because he was an engineer, but it was like, he showed us how to do it. And then we did it. And then the next thing he showed us how to do it. And then we did it. So it was just kind of, kind of like that. So we really hit the ground running. And then while we're doing that, then we're learning about the whole public health service, how to wear your uniform properly and all that stuff. Wow. So how many years were you with the service? At 25. That is a good long time. Yes. So Mm -hmm. tell me about some of the experiences you had while you were on, let's say, active duty. Right, right. You know, it was it was good. So my job experiences were good because I and you have to in the public health service, you really have to own your own career. So I changed, you know, I I was always looking ahead because I knew to get promoted, you had to keep moving up and do things. So I was always looking ahead and I used part of my GI Bill to get my master's degree, which was kind of a big deal for me, uh, you know, that took time. But my deployments, I had over 15 deployments. And, you know, of course, when you go on a deployment, it takes time away from you're not at home, you're not in your routine, it's stressful, it's chaotic, because we're going into a hurricane situation or 9-11, you know, whatever. But those were some of my most fulfilling times. And I made so many friends there and a lot of us still keep in touch. And that's amazing. So those were good. You know, the hardest one that that I did that was emotionally hardest was going to deploying to Hurricane Katrina. And I went about a month after it and then just seeing what happened down there. That that was tough. I can just imagine even seeing the footage after Mm -hmm. Katrina was like, took an emotional toll. I mean, you you had to maybe lack compassion or empathy if you felt nothing when you saw even Mm -hmm. the footage. So I imagine seeing it firsthand must have been impactful. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the buildings. And I went there. We were we had like around the clock deployments for a while there. I think, you know, most of the core deployed with that one. And I went a couple of weeks after it. And so then they were in cleanup mode and, and, and stuff. And it was just seeing the buildings, the vacant buildings and how they painted the squares on them to show, did they find any people? Were they deceased? Oh, Were there any pets? You know, it yeah. was tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just seeing oh. it. And I wasn't even the one doing it, but just, and just seeing that big, vibrant city empty. It was tough. I'm getting chills now. <laughs> uh, me too. Cause it's so crazy. I remember uh, after 9 11, I lived in Chicago and I actually worked in the Merchandise Mart, which is the apparel center. And um, it's kind of downtown. And I remember I had a trade show and and it happened on that day. And I had to go downtown to get my stuff out of my workspace so I could go home. Like that was just how I had. So we had to go back to the workspace. And I remember how empty the streets were 
in downtown Chicago. Yeah. And it was so creepy. It was a very eerie, just unsettling feeling that I will absolutely never forget. And so I imagine it must have been quite like that. But knowing that the tragedy actually struck there, because Mm -hmm. obviously I was in Chicago, not New York. So it was, it hit differently, I guess I say, Mm -hmm. you know, that's incredible. And what was the work that you had to do down there during or after Katrina? So when I was there with Katrina, I did more of a support role and, Mm -hmm. you know, being, being in IT. So I worked with the medical director and there were a lot of, there were some, not a lot, there were some civilian nurses that were there with us. So civilians, there's disaster medical assistant teams around the country. So we had civilians, we had PHS, and I was involved with trying to organize the field medical units that were going to go out where they would go out. Because at that point, people in the field, they didn't have hospitals, they didn't have doctors. So people who were there would go to these tents, you know, with medical tents to, to get their care. And so I was helping coordinate who was coming in and who was going where. And what's interesting, kind of a funny story. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia Mm -hmm. and I got there. So I showed up, I'm checked in. I'm like, yeah, you know, he said my name, I'm checking in. And then this guy turned around looks at me and he goes, Kelly, and he's in uniform. And I said, yeah. He goes, it's me, Scott. I went to, I grew up with Scott. We went to the same church. We went to the same high school. I mean, in our town probably has 5,000 people in it. (laughs) And and there we are. He was the medical director. And there we were meeting up. And I had no idea he was in the PHS. He didn't know I was in the PHS. And he just turned his head around. And this is, you know, 20 years after we graduated. Maybe not that long. But yeah, that was kind of a funny story and a neat story. So I took our picture. My aunt put it in the little local paper. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. such a great story. I actually, <laughs> ironically, had something similar to that happen to me while I was serving in the Navy. I ran into one of my, I went to a private school called Milton Hershey School in Hershey, PA. And it was kind of a small town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and I went, I ran into one of my classmates from my graduating class, uh, 94, mm-hmm. class 94, shout out. And, um, <laughs> and he was, he had enlisted in the Navy and I, he was right. I think he was on his boot camp, um, final weekend free where he had Liberty finally had Liberty and he had come to the mall and I happened to be at the mall. And we ran into each other in the mall. He was in uniform and I was in civilian clothes at the time, but he recognized me right away. And I saw him, I was like, oh my God. And so for like five minutes, we chit chatted and everything. And then he had to go. And then we connected years later again. Mm-hmm. Um, after he went to the CIA and all sorts of things. Um, but yeah. <laughs> years later, we we ended up connecting again for a while. But it, it's, a, it's a small world sometimes when yeah, you're in the yeah. uniform. <laughs> right. Yeah. And my classmate, Scott, so in, he's in uniform. He was a medical director for the deployment. And then his day job is he's stationed with the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. He's an epidemiologist. Wow. Yeah. 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 Wow, that's a guy. So I'd that's like the type of right people. Now. A lot of the public health <laughs> service people have two and three of these like big time degrees. That's incredible. I have an IT degree. I'm different. But yeah, he, he's an epidemiologist and um, in Atlanta for CDC. To where a lot of the health and human services agencies is where we get stationed, but also Bureau of Prison, Indian Health Service. No, I know some people that all Coast Guard. We help out the Coast Guard. We deploy, you know, we 
detail people. Incredible. You guys do a lot of good work. I had, I I knew some of it, but I didn't know the extent Mm -hmm. of how much great work that you guys do there. And so in your career, you, you got to see, you got to go and help out after Katrina. What were some of the other stories that you had? You know, a lot of it was, we, I started out on a disaster assistance, disaster medical assistance team that was PHS and a few civilians. And it was really just us. And a lot of those people I'm still in touch with. And that was 20 years ago. And if there was any kind of a hurricane or any kind of anything, a lot of times we would get called and and we would go and deploy. But early on, what we used to do every summer is we would deploy with the Army National Guard of Virginia. And we would go down in the mountains in Virginia. This is our DMAT team. And that would be, we would actually set up a medical tent and provide medical services to them when they needed it. And, but it was also training for us. It was showing us how to go set up if we get in that kind of situation, how can we set up a tent? So it was our training too, but we were actually legitimately providing medical services and it was hot, you know, it was in the summertime and it was really, really hot. It was like hundred degrees, hundred percent humidity. And one year there was a visiting British troop, a group there and British army, and they were there and they're not used to that kind of heat. And they're wearing their thick, you know, they don't have summer, you know, so they had right. thick uniforms. So they were, a lot of them were dropping and, and they would come to our clinic and have to get IVs because they were just overheated. Yeah. But that was always fun. So that was kind of a, a given. We did that every year. So that, that was fun. And it was a learning experience too. And then that prepared us for them when they expanded and they created the, PHS created the rapid deployment force teams. And now there's five or six teams around the country. So it's not just our one little group. And when the anthrax, you know, when the, that whole, that, and then they were passing out in DC because that whole anthrax scare yeah, many years ago, I remember that the government was passing out, like, I don't know what to call it, antidotes to, in case you got infected with anthrax, they were given out to the public. So I went down and helped out those clinics. And I, for what they signed me to when I was down there was, um, doing the keeping track of the databases and keeping track of who was getting what and who came in. And then I, I, you know, I noticed some discrepancies. I remember asking some like, well, this person's been here like three times. And they said, yeah, well, each one of those pills is worth worth like $20 because it was paranoia. So people were getting them and then going to sell or getting them for their family members. Yeah. So they didn't, you know, they just, it was paranoia. So I did stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah, right. Because I remember the whole anthrax scare and the paranoia with anything Mm -hmm. like this, people get Mm -hmm. super panicked in the public. So a lot of the public, I should say. So I can imagine there was a pretty penny to be made. I certainly would want to get pills for all of my family. Yeah, I I might not want to sell mine. Yeah, exactly. You can see why people do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were really scared. So what? are some of the challenges that you faced over your years? In the PHS? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was, we do have to go out and find, we don't have the assistance of a detailer. Now I was, I benefited that I did a, like a four-year tour with personnel. And when I was in that role, I helped, I was a career counselor kind of a person. So I learned a lot in that role because that was in the, the DCP personnel office, division commission personnel office. So I was able to kind of learn the ins and outs and what you needed to do to get promoted, which a lot of it was you had to do the work. But if you don't document it properly in your OPF, your official personnel file, 
no one, the promotion board's not going to see what you did and you're not going to get the credit. So the challenge was keeping that OPF and is how to get that knowledge out to everybody. So I was just fortunate that I had a really good mentor when I first came in, my very first supervisor. And, and then when I worked in DCP, I had very good mentors. I was able to carry that. And so then I tried to help other people. But it's, um, yeah, you, it's that was difficult to get that coordinated message out to everybody. And when you're ready, like I, I wanted to leave. I wanted to move to a different area, but I couldn't find a position outside of the DC area in IT. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can yeah. see you know, yeah. how could that could be a challenge? I never thought about that, me having a detailer. Granted, I was stationed at Great Lakes the entire right. time. I was there. I didn't go anywhere. Yeah. I didn't deploy. Yeah. But Pat- And it's when- good and bad. A lot of people leave the military and transition to the public health service because they don't like being told where to go and when to go, you know, where to move and I when could, to move that life disruption. So in a way, I'm not portraying that as a bad thing. It was a challenge, but there, there can be worse <laughs> things, you know? Yeah. So my last interview in partnership with Moa was with Pat and she spent some time as a detailer. Okay. <laughs> was really good at it. <laughs> and so um, hearing her stories, I could see the benefit of having a good detailer, but I can also see what you are saying about transitioning to um, PHS from the military because you don't want to be put somewhere or have to go through all of that. Right. So I, And I then the challenge for me was a lot of the people who I worked with were, were civilians. So when I deployed, let's say if I do a two-week deployment to for Hurricane Katrina, let's just say, and then or anywhere the other people in the office have to pick up that extra work. So then there was that guilt when you come back in the office, like, oh, you're away on a vacation. Well, it wasn't a vacation, but you kind of feel that Mm -hmm. we don't take the time off that we needed. Like I came back and would go to work the very next day. I didn't get that break because we're back at, you know, back at home. So now I can go back to work. And then there was that little bit of resentment and it could be like, I think some of it was legitimate resentment, but some people did, did know, but it was like, oh, well, you are off on vacation and now you need to be at work. And what if someone was deployed and then they had a vacation scheduled two weeks later? It, well, yeah. you know, if anything, we should have, we were, should have gotten <laughs> at least a couple of days off, but it was a lot of, and, and some of that, it wasn't consistent. We didn't have that kind of consistency because some people might come back and tell their supervisor, like, I just got back. I need a couple of days off. And then they would have said, okay, other people came back and just jumped right back into work. I guess it has to do with how much you cared about what other people thought. (laughs) And I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to prioritize my own needs. And if I need a couple of days after a deployment and I have that option, then I take it. But if you really care about what your coworkers think, or perhaps you're empathic and you care so much about what they've been going through while you were gone, you sacrifice that and you try to do what's what you think or feel is best for the team in yeah. that way. Or what your supervisor, because they give you the, your evaluation, which is so important Ooh. for your promotion potential. <laughs> Ooh, girl, I think you yeah. just called it out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can understand that. I think that in the military, a lot of people can identify with not taking leave or or additional time off or coming back earlier, you know, doing these kinds of things 
based on wanting the the favor of a superior. Mm-hmm. So I and yes. that's 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 uh, something I'm I've seen. <laughs> so yes. uh-huh. um, so I, I can identify with that a lot, and I'm sure a lot of people listening can as well. Mm-hmm. I've uh, seen people jump to work right after surgery and not take their their six weeks to leave their home or they're in the office. It's like, oh no! <laughs> I did that yeah. as a mom. I, right. had, <laughs> I had my kidney out, but I had a baby. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I just like to, a week after having a nephrectomy, I was kind of watching my toddler because mm-hmm. I had to. I didn't have a choice. So mm-hmm. definitely there are circumstances where you jump to it when you. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the supervisor that I was trying to uh, make sure was uh, I had their favor was my toddler. (laughs) Oh, right, right. And now that's a priority. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure my husband, my ex-husband now at the time was very happy that I started doing things sooner rather than later as well. Right. Um, so I'm pretty sure he was impressed. I earned his favor with that one too. And I'm sure a lot of women can agree with your spouse and doing things like that. Sometimes you do those things just to have their favor as well. Right. <laughs> so tell me now about your transition, because I know speaking of spouses, mm-hmm. you were away from your spouse mm-hmm. almost of all of the time. A lot of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I transitioned, I was already thinking about getting out, but honestly, my spouse is in the Coast Guard. Hmm. And I thought for sure, because the Coast Guard, a lot of times as you move up in ranks, they kind of alternate tours a lot of times with DC. And and a lot of people don't want to go to DC headquarters, which she put in for it because I was in that area. So I thought, oh, she's going to get DC and I'm kind of ready to retire. I mean, the job has just gotten overwhelming. And then she got Key West. And so I said, I'm not staying in this job in Rockville, Maryland in the wintertime when I can go to Key West. So that made my decision for me. And I was already thinking about it, but but I hadn't done any preparation. So I put in my retirement papers and six months later, retired to Key West. So I didn't get everything done, but it was just chaos. So I left my job. I left a lot of my friends that I had known for many years. I sold my house and gave up everything and then went to Key West, which is a dream come true. But then once I got down to Key West, then I'm doing like a lot of the VA stuff that I didn't have time to get done. And so we ended up only being there a year. I thought we were going to be there two years, but we ended up only being there a year. But getting Key West and being able just to leave that hectic, chaotic environment that I was in and really, I don't know if any, if people haven't been to Key West, it's like a Caribbean island. I would forget that I was in part of the United States. I would say, oh, I got to drive up to Florida to do whatever, go to, go to the VA hospital. <laughs> and then she would say, we're in Florida. You would forget because you're closer to Cuba than a Walmart. And so I went down there and I just zoned out. I hit, you know, I just checked out. <laughs> I didn't watch the news. I didn't, you know, I just pay attention to local Key West stuff. (laughs) Sounds fun. I mean, the closest I got to Key West uh, living in Miami was Isla Mirada. And I loved it uh there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still have yet to make it to Key West, but I hear that it's easy to just check out and chill out. (laughs) Yeah. And it was, and it was nice there, but then as I'm going through all the VA stuff, 
I kind of kicked myself because here I am. And that would be like a dream come true for people. You get to leave your job, go down there. But then when I went down there, there weren't really jobs down there for people because it's so touristy. So it was hard to get a job. I'm going through all the VA stuff, driving to Miami. And then I was a little bit lost. Then I'm kicking myself thinking, why do I feel down when on paper, if you look at what I've just done, that's a dream come true. But I was like, uh, I was a little bit, a little bit lost. And it's hard to make friends in Key West because it's so transient and there's not a lot of people there. And it was different. And then we, I thought we were going to be there two years. And because the detailer said oh, to the Coast Guard detailer, oh, you're staying. And then during the whole process, that two week that the detailers are meeting, someone in Memphis retired. So then they called and said, oh, no, you're going to Memphis. Oh. So we were only there a year. And then we went to Memphis for three years. How did you manage to keep your relationship on solid ground when you were hardly together while you were in? You know, it was hard. So one of the strategies that we did was she did have several tours in D.C., so that helped. And then a lot of her jobs that she put in for and she got was on the East Coast. So we were three-hour flight usually from anywhere at most. I mean, when she was in Long Island and Buffalo was much shorter even. So I could just fly back and forth pretty quick and go and do the weekend. So we saw each other at least once a month and we didn't have kids and that made it a lot easier. I think that would have, that would have been a game changer and would have been different. But since we didn't have kids, that's how we did it. And we actually met in Puerto Rico. I went to visit a Coast Guard friend in Puerto Rico and that's how we met many years ago. And then used to be able to space a fly. Remember when um, from Puerto Rico to Walter or Andrews, Mm -hmm. and then they closed down the base in Puerto Rico, but I did several flights down there, (laughs) which was nice. I can imagine. And, and then through your transition out, as you were saying, Mm -hmm. you were feeling a bit lost and you were Mm -hmm. having to drive up to Miami and deal with Mm -hmm. all things VA. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And trust me, I know the VA healthcare system in Miami is not the best and easiest to navigate, we'll say. Mm -hmm. So I can feel your pain. How did you manage to get through all of, of that period? Well, a lot of it was, I got help from, you know, just odd people gave me advice, you know, people who went before me. And one of the best advice I got, and I wish I knew his name, I give him a shout out. I was sitting at Boca Raton listening to live music, the one of the Navy, because they have like three little Navy bases, the air station, and mm-hmm. listening to live music at the marina. And I was sitting next to this guy and we got to talk and he was retired army, I think. And I said, oh yeah, I'm going to go down, you know, I got to go to VA. And he goes, oh, he goes here. And he told me, and I can't remember what it was, what to, to Google and look up. And he basically, he said, use your VSO, get a good VSO, a uh, veteran service organization rep and help, and they can help navigate all of that. And so different people offer different advice really when I needed it, you know, and it, so it was good. So that helped. And then I went to, when I would go to the Miami VA, I have to say, because I was going there to get I wasn't really going there to get care. I was going there to get the physicals and all of that. Right. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. And the VA is a lot better, I think, now than what it was in the past. It depends on where you're at. You know? mm-hmm. I think a, a lot depends on where you're going to be seen, mm-hmm. who the physicians are you're going to yeah. be seeing. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, a, 
all of those logistics <laughs> make yeah. a very, very big difference. Yeah. In, and the, and the inequities too, because like Memphis, their VA gets a very bad rap. Mm-hmm. And so everybody told me, don't even bother with Memphis, get all your stuff done <laughs> in Florida. And when you go to Memphis and I'm lucky, I'm still on the TRICARE prime, you know, from the active duty TRICARE mm-hmm. as a dependent. So I just, I'm just on that right now. And then now, and having spent decades with military healthcare, that's one of the things that stresses me out, but I know I'm overstressing because everybody does it. They try and they figure it out. <laughs> so we should be able to figure it out. I know I'm overstressing about, Oh, there's too many choices because <laughs> I'm not used to having choices. You yeah. know, you just call the TRICARE number or whatever number and you go. <laughs> It is a big change. Yeah. And that's yeah. one of yeah. those things about sort of navigating civilian life, right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and figuring out all of these yeah. little things. I think you need all of those helpers yeah. along the way, the people that that lend a helping hand. Um, definitely, mm-hmm. I've received them and I've given them a, right. over these years since I got mm-hmm. out many years ago now. And it's necessary. It's mm-hmm. necessary if you're going to thrive yeah. in the civilian world. And now you are a military spouse, at mm-hmm. least for a few months more. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I noticed one of the things you said was that you noticed how, as a military spouse, that there's underemployment in that community. Right, right. And I knew that. But then I really felt it. And, it, and it. And especially if you think about somebody, if they're moving around every couple of years, they're dropping their job again. And so even if they have great skills, and but they're not moving up in an organization. So when I went to Key West, even back then, not, not that many years ago, there wasn't as much, obviously the pandemic changed everything. But even before that, there was more teleworking and stuff. But when I went to Key West, there weren't a lot of jobs. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll get a job at the, university teaching or, or something, you know? And then I actually had one of my supervisors contacted me and said, oh, you can set up an LLC because that's what he did and be a business development agent because of the stuff that I knew in FDA and it's part-time and you can do it from anywhere. And again, that advice just came out of the air. He called me up and I'm like, oh, okay, let me do that because <laughs> he always hasn't done anything else. So I did that and that was very part-time, but that I'm still kind of doing that a little. I don't have any clients at the moment, but that's what I've been doing the last four years. But yeah. And then even when we went to Memphis, I was like, well, I could go get a a full-time job somewhere. And I could have, and then we would have moved again, but I just, I had not, then I had the LLC set up. So I just went with that and just kept that going and knowing that wherever we go next, I'll take that with me. But yeah, then moving around and what I realized too, like certain fields as they move from state to state, I do believe we ha- we should have like, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's teachings when I'm going to, I think it is teaching. You have to get a license in every state. Well, come on, if you're a military spouse and you're moving around, why do you have to pay and take the test or do whatever, all these extra hoops to teach that, you know, Doesn't so it also takes money. Yeah. Yeah. It takes money for them to get a job where they're making less money, you know, because they're not staying in one school system or healthcare system or whatever. But yeah. I mean, I feel that on so many levels, like when I got out of the military, you know, I worked, like I said, I did OJT in the pharmacy, but I knew my job well enough to be a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. This is what we did. This is what, how we right. were in a tech in the pharmacy. And the Navy does the same exact job as the pharmacist does. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I counted narcs, I dispensed meds, I filled prescriptions, I counseled patients, all of that. Okay. And I was 25 years old. Now have I got <laughs> out of the military and been able to take maybe a national exam and qualify. I may have stayed in that career and I might have been still doing it to this day, but because I knew that when I got out, that I was not going to be able to get the same job mm-hmm. unless I went and then studied and got a degree for a job that I had already been doing for over three years. It was, a, I mean, I pretty much had the degree <laughs> yeah. I've been doing the job for three and a half years. Like, yeah. So I, I can, I can relate to that a little bit of a different way, but I oh, can yeah. really relate to that. It's the same. And that goes back. I think that speaks to when I took my tax class at Walter Reed in Bethesda, we had a very good instructor who came in and was talking about post-employment and about doing your resumes. And and now I get to do like a transition 2.0, you know, now I'm transitioning a second time. But at that time, she gave us good advice on our resumes. And she said that only 1% of Americans are military. And, and I don't know if that's exact, but it was a very low number, but I want to say it's 1%. And then if you think about it, most people who are in the military, they've got cousins and brothers and sisters, you know, they know people. So the actual clump of military knowledge is small in the United States. Mm -hmm. So when people get out of the service, a lot of times what they have is hard to get that to translate to civilian life. And have the civilians understand it. Oh, absolutely. And then even the military people, like I know people who've got great jobs. They're like, oh, I'm not qualified for anybody. And yet, yeah, you are. You know, they don't feel like they have the qualifications, but they do. But then that 1%, it's even a smaller clump. And I think that goes to, speaks to what you just said about what you did in the military and then the type of job you could get outside of the military. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Completely changed the trajectory of my life. Right. Um, not complaining, but right. <laughs> who knows what could have been had. I mean, I think just in the civilian world in general, more acknowledgement. It's still astonishing to me how military training is not considered the best training. I just, I, on the, on the civilian world, it's, that's, I'm not going to go on my soapbox. I promise (laughs) (laughs) for like a whole nother hour, but it really is astonishing to me and disappointing. And it has been since I got out of the military to see, and I mean, I got out before nine 11, I didn't, you know, there was no thank you for your service when I got out of the military there is now. So I feel like the next phase, aside of more support for veteran-owned businesses, mm-hmm. and you know, um, is you know why the government itself doesn't institute any of these changes. Like a simple national certification could help right. spouses yes. and veterans coming out, you know, to be able to go into stay in their field, go into their field, and make it easier to transition. Mm-hmm as we're moving around. Right. And how many decades have they been talking about it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, that shouldn't be that difficult. Yeah. And it's this, the strangest, saddest thing to not know if it would ever change in our lifetime. I know. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, and, and, and yeah. it's, it's odd, but you know, I have this conversation with female veterans. We talk stories on this show, right? We talk right, stories, right. but we, I hear the good and I hear the bad of mm-hmm. serving and uh, not everybody has a good experience. And it's alarming to me that some of the things when I interview a guest who served in the seventies experienced as a female serving and a girl who got out in 2019, (laughs) you know what I mean? And may have had a very similar or the same experience. Right. Um, It's surprising how slow things are moving to get better. But I mean, we do see the strides they're making Mm -hmm. with the Brandon Act and um, the Vanessa's Act. Um, Mm -hmm. So we see things slowly moving, but will it get to the point where it should be in our lifetime? That right, remains right. to be seen, yeah. you know. Now, I one like, quick story about a spouse to, ah, to give a kind of a shout out. Uh, this yes. was a win. So when I was in active, when I joined active duty, I was in West Virginia. So I had West Virginia as my residence my entire time. So then when I get out, I didn't move back to West Virginia. So then I start following my spouse around. Everywhere we went, now that I'm a spouse. We went to Florida. I had to get a Florida driver's license. I had to vote to Florida. I had to do all that and register the car in Florida because I couldn't use the Texas. So she's a Texas resident. I could not use that. Then we go to Memphis. Then I got to change all that. And, and so that's added expenses. So not only are the spouses underemployed, but they, I mean, that could be thousands of dollars a year to do, just depending on the state. And then while we were in Memphis, and I don't remember the name of the law, but a law came out that said you can, spouses can take on the home record of their military person that they're following around. And then you don't have to do all that. So I switched my stuff to Texas. So now that I'm in Hawaii, I didn't have to go through and make all those changes. Wow. And it's not even something I ever really thought about, but that can Mm -hmm. be so costly. Mm -hmm. I remember moving from Illinois to Florida and the difference Mm -hmm. in changing all. And I was like, Mm -hmm. why is this so expensive here? Mm -hmm. And then moving from Florida here to Washington state, vastly different. It was like a relief. It was like, why is this so inexpensive? Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, but when you're moving from place to place to place, those expenses do add up. And if if you're having trouble working or you you can't find a job, Mm -hmm. that stress can be really overwhelming, I imagine. And then it can make the taxes stressful too. And then you got to pay for a CPA because what state do you do your taxes when you got a spouse who's one resident, you're another resident, and then you're working. And then maybe it's, a, you know, it's an underpaid job for what you can do. And now, now you even need help with your taxes. <laughs> you know, so a lot of that yeah. adds up, but that was a big win to me. That simplifies life. And I think some people may have already been able to do that. Like if they were married and living in the state when they mm-hmm. joined, I'm not sure there was a caveat, but like for a lot of people like me and a lot of people, they didn't have that as an, as an option. And now that's a big one that simplifies life and saves money. So it's the simplifies stress and saves money. And maybe some of these other things will follow suit. Hopefully. Right. <laughs> I want to ask you before we wrap it up. Okay. One question about your LLC. What are the services that you provide just in case someone listening might need them? 
So I provide website development. That's one of the new things I'm, I'm getting. I've done website development most of my career, but now I'm getting into that. Like for small businesses, I think that would be a fun project to help small businesses with their website development. And I recently passed my certified information system security professional test. So I'm well waiting done. on the actual the certificate. So that's kind of a big deal. So with that, I can help out with cyber planning, like like companies with their business continuity plans. And, you know, there's just so much under that CISSP umbrella. So anything like cybersecurity, planning, strategy, website development. And I'm trying, I'm meeting up with some people to try and team up. So if we have projects that we can work together on, if we get a bigger project or sub to some bigger companies, if they need subcontractors. Yeah, so IT stuff. And, you know, the I went to a online career fair for MOA. So MOA recommended he's, you know, the person I was talking with, he goes, try it, just see what it's like. And I talked to somebody. So cybersecurity, there's 200,000 vacancies for cybersecurity in the United States. And they are actively recruiting veterans, spouses of veterans, and minorities because those are, because now they're desperate. They need to fill these jobs. And those are untapped diversity, you know, untapped groups of people. And a lot of places are offering free training. And the VA is offering free training to spouses and veterans for certain certifications. That's wonderful news. Yeah. And it can be like entry level, some entry level stuff if people want to get ethical hacker or, you know, this, what I got was more of a higher level. I use my GI bill to, to fund that. But yeah, that's a, that's a something if people have an interest in that, there's definitely a need across the United States. I learned that from Moa. <laughs> That's a bonus. And I got to yes. say, I love, I love that organization. Me tell, too. Me, tell me with Moa, you've been working with them and they've been able to help you. What are some of, of the things that uh, you would recommend? Oh, for Moa? Mm-hmm. Definitely have them look at your resume. Cause I did the resume the first time I went through the TAPS program. Cause she had us, you know, we did it during class and I thought, okay, it's good. And I, and I sent it to Moa a couple months ago. And they, he was very polite. He told me all the different recommendations and he didn't say your resume is terrible, but he did say, you won't get a job with this resume. <laughs> and he told oh, me okay. all the ways to change it. So have them look at your resume. They offer good, a lot of help with that and just job sources. And I used them when I was in, you know, Memphis, I had more time. I would go and see what they were looking at from, you know, you know what bills they were looking at. And what they were pushing. And I would contact the con, look at, oh, this is important to them. This is why. And they spell it out. So if you want to be active politically, they make it easy just to contact your representatives. I love the organization. I think that they do so many wonderful things for the officer community. And they can certainly send you, if you were not an officer, they can certainly point you in the right direction for the support that you need. Pat was here and she interviewed recently and she works with them and talked a lot about it. So you can check out that episode for more details. But as Kelly pointed out, they're really helpful and they do a lot of good work. And so if you are an officer listening and you would like some support, definitely uh, you can reach out to MOA. That's the Military Officers Association of America, and they will support you. And if you're not an officer, they can get you in the right direction of where you need to be to get the support that you need. So and we love them and I'm so glad to have partnered with them. And is there anything more that you would like to share about MOA before we um, wrap it up? 
Oh, and one of the things that they did recently, so when we leave here, we, we're in Hawaii right now. Mm-hmm. So when we leave Hawaii, we're going to go to San Antonio and that'll be our final, you know, that's where we're moving to. So Moa, when I contacted him, he it's the very next day sent me emails virtually introducing me to different people who live in San Antonio. So I contacted them and had phone calls with them. And then I asked them, these are volunteers, but they're affiliated with MOA. Mm-hmm. And they talked about the job market. One lady, I asked her, but I said, do you mind me asking about your health care? Because, you know, that's stressing me out. She told me where she's getting her health care. And basically now, no, okay, I'll figure it out. And where to go hiking and where the golf, you know, she told me like a lot of the stuff to get acclimated in the community that you're going to. Now, San Antonio is a huge military town, so that helps. They have people there. But just the networking, as well as career guidance and healthcare guidance, and my friend's husband, he gets, and I don't understand a lot of the Medicare stuff, but he gets some kind of extra Medicare insurance through them and Medicare Advantage. I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, they do so much. They're incredible. If you would like to find out exactly how incredible MOA is directly and learn more about how MOA helps service members, go to their new landing page. It's moa.org forward slash retirement hyphen resources. That will be listed in the description box where you'll just scroll down, find the link, copy and paste it, and you'll be taken directly there. And I will tell you, I know that your wife is going to be retiring here soon. Mm-hmm. What is it? Six <laughs> months from now? Yeah. Uh-huh. So congratulate her for me and then send her my way because she will be eligible to be oh, a yeah. guest on the Female Veterans Podcast. And I can't get enough stories from females who serve in the Coast Guard. So oh, I'll okay. be excited to hear her story of service. All right. Um, I want to thank you so very much for being a guest on the Female Veterans Podcast. And I always ask my guests one final question, and that is what advice would you give veterans who are on their journey right now from your experience? I would say pay attention to mentors, informal and formal. You know, they're they're everywhere. People like to help. And if you go with the, and ask the question, they'll help. And sometimes they just offer it when they find out what you're doing and what you're going through. And, you know, it's stressful in the military and in the services. And when I was working, I had numerous coaches and people tell me to meditate. And I'm like, I can't meditate. Well, when I was in Key West, I found myself so kind of stressed out and down when I'm in this, what it should have been imperfect. I got a book and started learning about meditating and I took a class in Memphis. So now even one minute a day is better than nothing. So I would say meditate, use your VSO, you know, use your resources because we don't even know what benefits are out there, but they're out there. Like I would not have known about the cybersecurity stuff, but I stumbled on that talking to the guy at the the hiring fair, you know, so just talk to people, listen to people, use your veteran service organization, you know, hook up with one people who've gone before you ask them what worked and what didn't you know about? Cause we don't even know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ask people, what, what did you not know that you wish you did? You know, that kind of stuff. Those are some of the big ones that I would say, and just keep an open mind. And it's hard to, slow down when you're go, 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 go. It's hard to, it's harder to sit back and 
just cruise into retirement than what you would think. Oh, and don't keep up with the Joneses. You know, this is America. <laughs> we overspend. So that I tell everybody that people, especially people younger than me in my generation, we really didn't do that early on. Mm-hmm. Don't overspend because especially when you retire, what I've seen from talking to people, our retirement cost of living does not keep pace with active duty cost of living. So when I retired, I was making the same as someone who was higher ranked than me. And he retired 10 years before me. We were making the same. So you figure every 10, you know, so just don't get paranoid about it. But your income won't go as far probably 10 years from now, unless people like Moa, that's that's where they come in for real. Yeah. Don't keep up with the Joneses. It's freedom if you don't have a ridiculous amount of debt. If you're not paying $600 for a car every month, you got freedom. <laughs> that's ain't that the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keeping the debt in check. And that's something I think that's an issue in, in our country that we could do better at. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother soapbox we could go on yes. for a whole nother hour. And that's another <laughs> one about the, the system of keeping people oppressed with debt. But free yourself. Yes. <laughs> That's why tiny homes are, are so, so amazing. And my dear friend, which I will, spoiler alert, I will talk about this more in the upcoming months. But my friend is the CEO of a company called Hub Kamal. And they are creating these, um, they call them chrysalis pods, but they are sustainable living pods. Oh. And they're kind of like the futuristic version of a tiny house. <laughs> Oh, nice. It's really cool <laughs> because they have aquaponics and then you can grow food in the wall. So we'll get into more oh. of that later, but um, and they're extremely affordable too. And so I'm, as I get a little bit more involved with that more and more, I'll start sharing about that more on the podcast as well, because you know what? We need these things. If you can find a way to get yourself debt-free, mm-hmm. then you really are free. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of freedom there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what we fought for. That's right. <laughs> that's what you served for as well. Right. So, um, well, I got to say, it's been such a great pleasure to, to meet you and talk to you and hear your story and learn about uh, what it's like to be a public health services officer. And um, this has been an incredible experience and a great conversation. So thank you so much for yeah, being you. a guest. Thank you. And it was a nice meeting you. Thanks for having me. And in case people are wondering, the second non-military, ser- non-armed service is NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. It's beautiful. So it's the, all the, now with the Space Force, the six armed services, and then NOAA and USPHS. Wow. One yes. big happy family. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> but it was very nice. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And hopefully our paths cross again. I have a feeling they will. I'm sure of it. Yes. And um, if you would like to reach Kelly about um, getting a website done or some of those cybersecurity things, you've if you're you got bells and whistles going off when she said that, then I will put her contact information in the description box. As you know, I always do. Um, that is where you uh, read what the episode is about when you uh, click onto it, and you just scroll down until you see all that information. Otherwise, you can always go to my website, thefemaleveteranspodcast.com, and send me a form, and I will respond to you as soon as possible with the information. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the female veterans podcast. And I am on Twitter, not as often, but at femvet podcast, I kind of think Twitter is a little bit of a cesspool. So it's hard for me, but I'm trying to do better. You guys so go follow me there. 
um, at FemVet Podcast and keep listening, keep rating the episodes, um, those good ratings. Thank you, by the way, for all of those ratings. I discovered a whole bunch more this holiday, this past holiday, while I had time to actually look at that stuff. And um, thank you for that. And thank you for all the donations. And as always, um, you can find all of the organizations, um, the foundations that I'm supporting in the description box below the episode as well. So you can see who to go help if you so choose to, if you feel compelled to support some of these organizations, all their information is there as well. I did a whole little episode about supporting veteran businesses because we've got to support each other. We've got to help each other, which is why I shared uh, about Kelly's business as well. So we're all we got. So we should be, you know, we're out here supporting small businesses. We're out here supporting, you know, all of these things. Let's support each other. Anyway, thank you for supporting me on this journey. (laughs) I am so grateful. I love you guys. And I will talk to you next time.